0: Three women are thrust into the life
1: of being a widow. And they each have a very different way of coping with it. Coming up next on Out of Touchdown. a song featured in the film how about a song that's actually performed in the film that is etta cox with a song called there will never be another you welcome to out of touch my name is mike de and on the other end of the skype lines my co-host chad smart chad are you ready to discuss joining clubs
0: you know I, I have two ways to go with this one is that uh i was never allowed Actually, I have three ways one i was never allowed to be in a club Two, in the words of Groucho Marx, I would never belong to any organization, any club that would have me as a member. And three is the Mitch Hedberg way of, they let me order a club sandwich, and not, I'm, I'm not even a member.
1: <laughs> well, you know what's funny is, we're going to be looking at two films on this episode. The Touchdown movie, I had never even heard of before we started this podcast. And at the end of the episode, we're going to compare it to a film released by Hollywood Pictures, that I overlooked for nearly three decades, and I'm so glad that I finally fixed that. But uh, we'll just hop right in, and the first film was released by Touchstone. It came out on February 3rd of 1993, and it's called The Cemetery Club.
0: From Touchstone Pictures, they were three friends who thought their best times were behind them. Guys are going to start hitting on
1: you. Call it fate. Call it destiny. That's when they made the decision. Size is 8. Fourteen To start all over again. Let the games begin. Now they're proving if life is what you make it. To us. They've got it made. Who's the looker?
0: You're out of control. The Cemetery Club, rated PG-13.
1: Starts Friday, February 12th at a theater near you. This was based on the stage play written by Ivan Menchel, which played on Broadway in 1990. Uh, Disney had acquired the film rights and hired him to write the screenplay, and this was his first ever writing credit. The film was directed by Bill Duke. Now, Chad, I remember him more as an actor than as a director. You know, in the 1980s, he was in uh, films like Commando and Predator, uh, Action Jackson, also Bird on a Wire. But then he went into directing a lot in that decade as well. Did a lot of television. It seemed like you look him up on IMDb and it's like every show you could possibly think of in the 1980s. Dallas, Hill Street Blues, Matlock, Miami Vice. Chad, did you know there was an Outsiders TV series? I
0: did. First season that Fox, for second season maybe, that Fox was on the air, and it starred a young David Arquette.
1: Oh, okay. Well, Bill Duke directed some episodes of The Outsiders. All right. Uh, Yeah, he also did some uh, TV movies for PBS, including one that was very highly acclaimed in 1984 called The Killing Floor. Um, But he only had two feature credits prior to this film, and that was uh, Rage in Harlem in 1991, and also Deep Cover in 1992 with Lawrence Fishburne. Saw that one in the theater, actually. I yeah.
0: Just, you know, stop me if you've heard me say this before in this show, but I actually just watched both of those films, probably Deep Cover in the last three to four months and Rage in Harlem probably about three weeks ago. And I did huh? not know Bill Duke was a director, <laughs> but I have to say, if you've not seen a Rage in Harlem, I highly recommend it.
1: Oh, really? Okay. I don't really know that one very well. Uh, yeah.
0: Forrest Whitaker is, is really good. And so is Robin Gibbons. So, okay. And deep
1: cover was pretty good. What yeah. I remember, I was seeing it in high school. Yeah, and Bill Duke's actually going to come back and do one more Touchstone film before the year is up, so we're going to hear his name again. Uh, but as far as the stars, who is the the Cemetery Club itself? Well, we have three major actresses, heavyweights, who had all been acting in television and film since the late nineteen fifties or the early nineteen sixties. You know, uh, starting off, we have Ellen Burstyn, who plays the character of Esther. She's a five-time Oscar nominee who had won Best Actress in 1974 for the Martin Scorsese picture Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Interestingly enough, she also plays a widow in that movie, I thought. Um, She also starred in films such as The Last Picture Show, The Exorcist, Harry and Tonto, and then she switched to mostly TV movies in the 1980s. Did not know this, she also had her own sitcom in 1986 that ran for 13 episodes, and it was called... The Ellen Burstyn Show. Chatter, do you remember the Ellen Burstyn Show sitcom?
0: You know, I do. It's weird. It was on the first season that Fox was on, and it starred a young David Arquette. I'm completely mm-hmm. joking. No, no, no. I do not know the Ellen Burstyn Show.
1: Yeah, and I, was, I think the interesting little trivia factoid about that one was a very famous actress played her daughter on that show, and it was like, this was, again, 1986, and so I never would have recognized Megan Mullally Hmm. until many, many years later. But she played the daughter, yeah. Um, her last major motion picture, Ellen Burstyn, before The Cemetery Club, was the 1991 film Dying Young with Julia Roberts. Yeah. Um, next up, we have, we have Olympia Dukakis, who played the character of Doris. She was more known as a stage actress, but had a handful of TV and film roles. She really broke out in 1987 with Moonstruck, and she won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. And then she followed that up with some starring roles in Steel Magnolia's, dad i didn't realize that she was in the look who's talking films Mm -hmm. and uh, cemetery club actually comes between parts two and three of the look who's talking cinematic universe uh sadly sad to note that limpy dukakis did just pass away last month i think yeah uh that's why that name was kind of fresh in my mind when we saw the film uh, and then lastly, we have Diane Ladd, who played the character of Lucille. She had done lots of TV work in the 1960s. During that time, she met and married Bruce Dern, and she had a daughter, Laura. People know Laura Dern. Uh, I, I did not know this, Chad. Did you know that all three of Diane Ladd, Bruce Dern, and Laura Dern, and Laura Dern all have adjoining stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame?
0: I'm sure I have walked past them at some point. I know they tend to group people together, like Kevin Bacon and Kira Sedgwick are next to each other. Um, uh-huh. Abbott and Costello are, are like three blocks away because they didn't like each other. But yeah, <laughs> so I'm not surprised. Yeah.
1: Well, she uh, Diane Ladd did have some prominent film roles in the 1970s. She also starred in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore and got a Best Supporting Actress nomination as well as uh, Chinatown. I forgot she was in Chinatown. Yeah. She she also starred in the 1983 Disney film Something Wicked This Way Comes, one of the last movies, live action movies that Disney made before they created Touchstone Pictures. Um, some other notable film roles, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Uh, She was also in A Kiss Before Dying. And then she got back-to-back Oscar nominations for Best Supporting Actress for 1990's Wild at Heart and also 1991's Rambling Rose. She played, I think she played Laura Dern's mother in that movie, right? Mm -hmm. Or at least a relative, because Laura Dern got an Oscar nomination for that as well. Um, Then the the, uh, fourth member, which I think I was going to ask you, Chad, I think you said there's only four cast members in the entire stage play. Uh, the fourth member of the main cast is is Danny Aiello, who plays the character of Ben. Um, his film work goes back to the early 1970s. He starts off with Bang the Drum Slowly and The Godfather Part Two. That's a pretty good first two films. Uh, in the 1980s, he appeared in films like Fort Apache, The Bronx, Once Upon a Time in America, Purple Rose of Cairo and Radio Days for Woody Allen. He's also in Moonstruck. He's in a movie that Chad absolutely just loved because he was <laughs> raving about it on the last episode, The January Man. Um, And then he wrapped up the decade with Harlem Nights and Do the Right Thing, got an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress for Do the Right Thing. Yeah. And in in the middle of all that, he also played Madonna's father in the video for Papa Don't Preach. That's what I remember. Might have been the first time I remember seeing Danny Aiello at our age. Right. Yeah, I
0: completely forgot about that. So hmm. Yeah. And then Good he memory. kicked
1: off the he kicked off the 1990s with uh, Jacob's Ladder and a movie that I will always sing the praises mm-hmm. of no matter what anybody says. Hudson Hawk. Uh, his last his two previous films before the Cemetery Club, both released in 1992. He was he played Jack Ruby. I totally. Yeah, I another one of those ones that I I remember when it came out. Uh, but I do. I never would have seen it. I don't know, Chad. Have you seen Jack the the Ruby movie?
0: I have not. And uh, I, I, now that you mention it, I vaguely vaguely remember it. But when I saw it on your rundown here of Ruby, I had no idea what it was.
1: Yeah, and then the other movie Danny Aiello made in 1992, which I would have to look this up. But this sounds pretty fascinating. It's called Mistress, and I guess it's a comedy about the film industry where these, which Robert Wool and Martin Landau are trying to make a film. And they have to deal with these, fi- these financiers who all want to cast their own mistresses in the film. And it's Danny Aiello, Eli Wallach, and Robert De Niro. Hmm. And I'm like, huh, I did, I did not know that one as well. Well, you got Robert Wool in there, so you know. Comic gold?
0: That Robert Wool is in a movie. So it probably hey. took, took time out of the 87 seasons of Arliss to do that one. <laughs>
1: Well, Chad always likes to point out really great performances by supporting cast in these movies. And there's a great supporting cast. It's, it's, it's funny to think that in the stage play, none of these people would have existed in the stage yeah. play. And I'm glad they kind of fleshed out the film version. Uh, first and foremost is Lainey Kazan. I, I absolutely loved her in this film. She returned to Touchstone. She was also in Beaches. Uh, we got Bernie Casey, who's only unfortunately only in one scene. I do like him. Remember from Revenge of the Nerds, he's also in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, not to mention all those exploitation movies in the 70s. Uh, uh, Ellen Burstyn's daughter in the film is played by Catherine Keener, who had just been in uh, the Gun and Betty Lou's handbag for Touchstone. And then the granddaughter is played by Christina Ricci, who had just been in The, the Adams Family and as well as Mermaids. Uh, we also get Wallace Shawn, from, who was in The Princess Bride. And we even get a brief glimpse of oh Jerry Orbach. I miss Jerry Orbach so much. You know, he was just he was just in Straight Talk for Hollywood Pictures the year before. He was also I think he's Lumiere, right, Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. that's my first thought when you see Jerry Orbach in the beginning, and I'm like, oh, Jerry Orbach, we mm-hmm. need more of him. Yeah all right well we always like to break down the movie by just kind of asking some questions I'm gonna post some questions to Chad we'll yeah. look at the, we'll look at the production and the script but we'll also start with some of the performances and well I mean the first things first Chad that you know the three lead actresses make up kind of an interesting mix of personalities and I want to ask you like do you believe these women would be would have been friends
0: yeah I think these women would be friends I mean given their age you know the age of the women the especially the time period in which this movie was made and you know i think this is like a neighborhood film all these women live nearby so i could see them going down to the local diner and and having a meal you know a couple days a week so Mm -hmm. uh, yeah i totally bought into their friendship
1: and was there anyone of of the three was there anyone who's particularly stood out as far as their performance
0: (sighs) I'm going to have to go with Olympia Dukakis, namely or mainly for the main for the reason that she was the only one when thinking about this movie afterwards that I could remember being in the film. So <laughs> Ellen Burstyn and Diane Ladd are good actresses and everything, but their names just kept escaping me whenever I was telling someone about the film, and I'm like, oh yeah, it's got Olympia Dukakis and um and it's got the other woman who was in that movie with that thing that starred David Arquette. It's going to be my running <laughs> joke for this episode. I'm sorry. But no, I, okay. I mean, I thought they were all good. But Olympia Dukakis, yeah, that's my would be if you if you pressed a gun to my head and said, name the best actress in this in this film.
1: Yeah. I mean, like I said, all three of them are they're they're all really good actresses. I think like I didn't I did not realize I thought it would be more of an ensemble piece. Like mm-hmm. the, the, every uh, poster or plot description I read of this movie said it's all oh, about these three women that bond. You know, they're all widows. But it's pretty much about one woman. It's about Ellen Burstyn. And, and she, is the, she is the one that's having the, the most difficult time kind of moving on. And unfortunately, she's really overly dramatic in this film. I, I, hmm. I kind of was taken a little bit, taken aback by that. And then Olympia Dukakis and Diane Ladd are just like the sidekicks. You know, Diane Ladd, is, she's great. She provides great comic relief, but also some really harsh truths. She's the one that has to kind of snap everybody back to reality all the time. And then I, I, I had this, this note in my, in my notes that said, Olympia Dukakis is an anchor because she holds them together but also she prevents them from moving forward Ooh,
0: that's I deep. That's
1: kind of, that's yeah deep. i know because it, it kind of hit me because it's like the whole point of this her character is like she wants to keep going to the cemetery and visiting her husband's grave and the other two are just like no we need to move on and mm. she's just like no i got to honor his memory and all that stuff and and i was like yeah it's but i wonder how difficult that is i mean i know when my when my mother passed away my dad was going to the cemetery a lot and it took mm. Some time for him to move on but this i think with this one it seems like they go they're going like every year and years are going by and they're still going to the cemetery on a regular mm-hmm. basis but yeah it's interesting that like i said it's interesting I, we were talking about this off the air but i have the notes here uh, of the three actresses and how old they were when the movie came out because i know they kind of look a little bit older they're like these mm-hmm. these older jewish women they're, they're widows and i was thinking if you if you were going to remake it it's funny to think about if you've gotten Hollywood actresses of today that are this age, they wouldn't seem like these old ladies who were who were widows. But Ellen Burstyn was 60. Olympia Dukakis was 61 and Diane Ladd was 57. Oh, well, wow. And I mentioned that because I believe Sandra Bullock turns 57 this year. <laughs> <laughs> you know, And so trying to picture Ellen, uh, uh, Sandra Bullock is like this, this older, you know, this old widow. It's just mm-hmm. like, no, no, it's 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 funny. I don't know if you could re- if you could make this movie today.
0: Well, if you did, you'd have to. You know, uh, Diane Ladd and Ellen Bursting, Bursting could probably come back and play the same characters because you would age them to be, you know, what their ages are today to be more, uh, again, so that they seem like older women who are
1: on their own. And so, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, well, aside from the women, my, the other next question I had for you is, Chad, how awesome is Danny Aiello? Like, I I miss him tremendously and i think he holds his own against these strong female performances
0: yeah he being the the pretty much the lone male character of of substance in this film he, he he's got a lot of weight to carry and he does it well and i think his character it it's a good uh balance
1: to the three women yeah, and I mean, I will say that you know he's trying to romance Ellen Burstyn. He does move kind of fast, mm-hmm. but he's 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 a real charmer. And I, I think especially there's a there's a great scene with the two where him and Ellen Burstyn are on a date, and and she's talking to him about his wife because he's a widower as well. And it's just it's just really because you think of him as this big kind of rugged tough guy, and he gets a chance to kind of be a little bit sentimental. How about you? How come a uh, police officer leaves the force? and decides to drive a taxi. It's hard to explain. I I quit when Myrna died. Why? Kind of a gesture, I guess. She never wanted to be married to a cop in the first place, but she did. She was always scared. I felt bad for her, but I didn't quit. I put the house in her name, took out a life insurance policy. She didn't like to talk about things like that, so I never told her. I know she prayed for me every day of our married life. Seven years.
0: I never prayed for her. and she was gone. That's when I quit. Too late to do her any good, but
1: like I said, a gesture. And as I mentioned earlier... Laney Kazan, I, I she is so fantastic. I, I really wish I could see more of. Her. I got to look her up. Yeah, I do. But the question I have in relation to Lainey Kazan is, did we get enough of her? Because I really feel like she absolutely steals every scene that she's in. And they joke about how she's, she's the one that keeps getting married, and the the other three women say that their their her marriages are like reunions for all of the female characters. Have you seen my big fat Greek wedding? No, no, I have not.
0: Yeah, I would recommend that one if you like. Lainey Kazan so okay and you know I'll talk more about it probably a little bit later when we get to the script but again she's a character that in the source material you hear about but you never see
1: really yeah really okay yeah and then she like I said there's another scene where she's she's talking to Ellen Burstyn about like what she's looking for in a husband and and she just says oh I want a friend oh it's just it's really really mm-hmm. good I liked I liked her so much i really was like no no disrespect to the three leads i just really would have wished there would have been more laney kazan and i also wish we would have had more wallace sean like he's wallace sean's just like the wedding planner right he only has a couple Mm -hmm. of scenes and i think you mentioned it off the air but it's it's weird that why would they get wallace sean for such a small role i mean back in 1992 where there were a lot more character actors that could have filled these spots unless it was just someone who's familiar with the source material or just wanted to work with disney
0: Maybe, yeah. That's my big thing, you know. I I love character actors, and so when you when I see the opening credits, and it, you know, they are in the opening credits. Wallace Shawn, Bernie Casey, uh, Christina Ricci, Catherine Keener, oddly not credited in the opening credits. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I'm like, oh, okay, awesome. And then Bernie Casey shows up for one scene. Wall Shawn is in, like, I think, two because he's like the wedding venue or the owner of the venue where Lainey Kazan is getting married. Uh, towards the end of the film and it's just like I, I want more of them like give me give me those characters or, or not even the characters just give me those actors if you're going to put them in the movie like and, and you're going to promote them i want to see them you know otherwise just making a nice little cameo and surprise me later in the film
1: all right well you alluded to it a minute ago and so i was gonna say the next question i had would have been dealing dealing with the script um Simply put, are there too many locations? You know, you, you mentioned that you I think you mentioned it to me off the air as well, that the, the play only has two locations. And I, I honestly wish there were more scenes at the diner. I was under the impression that this movie was going to be about these three women meeting together at this diner. And there's two scenes early in the film at the diner. And you get to know the waiter and he's got he's making some really jokes that don't really land. And it's really kind of fun and charming. And I was thinking, OK, we're going to get more scenes there. And and then that's it. And so now yeah. the, 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 the film is spread out across the entire city, and I wonder if maybe it would have been a little bit more unique and not so conventional if they, would, if they would have just had it in a couple different locations.
0: Perhaps. You know, I'm going to go back to our episode where we talked about Noises Off, which is another adaptation of a play. And, you know, when we did that episode, we watched Noises Off, and I said I also watched the movie Death Trap, which was another play, uh, translated to to screen and that only has basically one location but that one works as a limited location whereas i thought the play of of um cemetery club just it it needed something it needed that restaurant scene it needed something to break up and it takes place it takes place in the cemetery and it takes place in Esther's house and that's it and it's just like i mean it's, it's great uh and easy to put on if you're a local you know, Playhouse, but I, I felt the play was a little short changed in that regard where, uh, as I mentioned, you don't see the Laney Kazan character. You only hear about her. So as a film, hmm. I can see, you know, take, you know, you can have more resources, so it makes sense to do so. But I just think that the, the structure of the story didn't, needed some work.
1: Yeah, the structure was a little bit different. I, you know, it starts off at like this sort of like Wacky comedy where they're going to the first Laney Kazan wedding. And then we see one, two, three, all of the women, their respective husbands die. And you get these really heavy funeral scenes that are they are powerful and effective, but they're kind of hard to watch.
0: You know, for me, I, and I don't know why this was because I, I, I think it's just my viewing. But it took me a while to realize that each of the husbands were dying because, like you said, it starts off, you see – the, th- the husbands are at this wedding, and then it's like boom, 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 funeral, funeral, funeral. And other than the fact, I think one of them is it's raining and the other it's not, but I felt those were too similarly shot, and the wardrobe was too much, too similar to for me to understand that. Oh, it's a different funeral each time. And then it's like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. now, obviously, cemetery club, duh, it's what the movie's about. And also, like I said, I, I, even though I know each of these actresses individually, just something about when they put them together, I wasn't focusing on, okay, this is Ellen Burstyn leading the funeral procession. Now it's Olympia Dukakis. Like, I, I think they could have set up the characters and the situation a little bit better. And I wonder, you know, we go back to Bill Duke only having two feature um, credits under his belt. And like I said, I both of his films I highly recommend. But this one, you know... Mm. Maybe it just this material wasn't his
1: strong suit. Well, yeah. And I, like, I feel like the like I said, the, the way that the movie goes back and forth between drama and comedy. Yeah. Maybe that's a typical dramedy. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I, I, I thought it was kind of very odd changes in tone because it's like, are we supposed to set up that this, it, it's like these sort of funny comedy with these three friends trying to cope? Or we got to get into the really, really heavy stuff. And I was going to ask you, like, did you think it worked like, is, is, can you can you be effective at both or do you have to choose one or the other?
0: I think you can do both well if you know how to handle it. And that's where I'm, you know, again, I'm going back to the director because they always seem to take the uh, criticism when a film is, is is off in the tone or, you know, if it doesn't flow, flow well. And, you know, going from television, which is a completely different um, situation to a two hour film. And like I said, you know, I, I I go back to Rage in Harlem, which plays comedy well, and then it's got some heavy-handed, you know, kind of mafia stuff. And I thought that did well. This one, I just, I don't think the characters were written strong enough to be able to go, you know, I mean, you, you think about the situation. Here are these three uh, older women who are now, you know, I'm again, going back into the time frame in which this is made, these are probably women who depended on the husbands throughout their life. And now they're on their own. And like, okay, what do we do now? And, you know, when we get to the reviews, there'll be a a comparison to uh, another popular show about widowed women on their own living together. But, you know, I I think this one just didn't handle the characterization very well. Like it didn't create strong enough characters on their own.
1: Well yeah, and I think last the last thing I was to mention like my my one of my biggest uh flaws I, I thought with the film mm. was that it just played out like a romantic comedy. Like mm. it was a little bit too conventional and I I felt like it was it was very formulaic at that yep. point like it was it it was not did not seem like it was going to be that sort of support system yeah. for for widowed women. It was more just like one woman trying to date and then she's got the two wacky friends. Mm-hmm. And like there's I think there's one scene where 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 she breaks up with Danny Aiello and then she surprises him. And of course, you know, he's not alone when she shows up at his place. And I was just like, as soon as she, she showed up, I kind of looked at my wife and I'm like, let me guess. So he's got someone in the room and you're like, Oh, of course. And someone like way younger than him. So that you're supposed to go, Ooh, boo, hiss. Yeah. you know but i just that that got me it was a little bit the movie was a little bit too sentimental and and kind of too formulaic unfortunately i don't know did you did you think the same thing because I, I i just yeah. thought i know you watch a lot of movies and so i'm I, like probably, you've probably seen this plot play out too many times well, with younger actors you know? yeah
0: and i probably watched too many movies to where this one just didn't register with me it yeah i i was a little dis- I was disappointed in this film um i you know again great performances great actors but the story itself is just, you know, and I'll, I'll go into the play. I, you know, watching the play, I um, watched this movie on a, on a Monday, and then on Tuesday, found the screen screenplay for the play or the script for the play online, and found a YouTube video of a Playhouse in Texas that had put on the show. I think in the last two to three years, and so I ended up watching that and reading the play along along with it, and I, I like the play a lot better. I think the play handled the comedic moments better. Um, and hmm. so I would, you know, I would say, if you're, if you're going to think about watching it, watch the play, like, you know, <laughs> the, the acting is not as great. Granted, it's and no offense to the actors in the movie, but, or in the play, but you know, it's local playhouse theater, not a big hmm. Hollywood production, but yeah, I, I, I watching it and seeing the differences between, the stories and how the scenes are set up. I I just think the play worked a lot better and, and something got lost in translation for the
1: movie. Well, I mean, so that's what you and I thought about the movie, Chad. What did some other prominent critics of the era think about the cemetery club?
0: All right. Well, my, you know, I'd like to start off if I can with the good old Roger Ebert review. And he says, sometimes at the movies, I get the impression that Hollywood love stories are all about people too young to get driver's license. Here's a film open to a whole range of possibilities for older characters. And as Burstyn, Dukakis, and Ladd plot their strategies and exchange their hopes and fears, it's refreshing to know they realize that love is much more complicated than most young lovers ever dream. So Mm -hmm. that's him. And then uh, Vincent Canby of the New York Times says, The Cemetery Club depends on a lot of one-liners, but the Golden Girls, it is not. For all the sarcasm in the dialogue, there is little wit. Unlike that long-running television show, The Cemetery Club makes no redeeming efforts to shake up the conventions of the form. The film is so calculating in its methods, so unsurprising in its details, that it will send some people screaming for the exits in the first 20 minutes. Others will watch it in contentment. Sentimentality of this naked kind can also soothe. Yeah. So, as for me, well, I think I kind of said said it all. I'll, I'll just add to what I was saying earlier about the play when i when watching the play a mere less than 24 hours after watching the movie when i got to the ending and the you know big i guess kind of moment that happens at the end i went oh yeah that does happen i had completely forgotten the ending of the cemetery club in less than a day so for me you know this is one of those ones where i'm like it's a fine film and i and i think the performances are going to keep it slightly above sinking but below water i'm giving it a four because again perform great performances just a movie that uh i don't think i won like i said couldn't remember it 24 hours after and uh i don't think i'll ever revisit the cemetery club
1: Huh. okay well i think i liked it a little bit more than you i give it a five out of ten hmm. um again like you said the, the performances are really strong it's a the charming story, but the, the tone is kind of all over the place. And I, no, I, I thought it would be a little funnier. And I know you, yeah. you shouldn't fault a film for something that it isn't, mm-hmm. but I, I just I was under the impression that it was going to have a little bit more bite to, especially with the, those first few scenes in the diner that kind of set up, Oh, let's get this, this wacky waiter. And we're going to see him a little bit more, but I guess not. Um, from a trivia standpoint, not really a whole lot on this film, but what was funny was the whole time I'm watching it, there's these scenes early in the film where they're in the cemetery and I was thinking, you know what, that looks kind of reminds me of the cemetery from the Hollywood Pictures film, Passed Away from 1992. And I was like, the more I saw it, I'm like, that might be the same cemetery. And then sure enough, you start seeing more scenes because they never tell you what city they're in, in the cemetery club. And then I looked it up and it's Pittsburgh. They filmed the whole movie in Pittsburgh, which is where they filmed, Passed Away. So I, I tried to, I looked online and tried to figure out if the filming location was the same. I could not get it confirmed, but I'm convinced it's the same one. That's, I, that's it, so. um I always like to look at, there's like a legacy of the film. Again, it was based in a play, so I'm sure that the play still does get performed. Uh, Like you said, it's kind of like Golden Girls, the movie. I I don't Mm. know if, uh, I hadn't really seen any ensemble films like this, you know, before that feature like a cast of these legendary actors, but Mm. you know, there's no, obviously there's no, they're not going to get a sequel or a remake, but I wonder, did it, did it spawn other films? I I can't remember, I can't think of anything else kind of like that. It seems like there's, there's been a lot of movies with, with groups of women who have to help through struggles and stuff, but never one where it's like the uh, you know the older legendary actresses.
0: Yeah, the only thing I can think of would be the first Wives Club, which is kind of an interesting take. Because I would be curious to see how old Goldie Hawn, Diane Keaton, and Bette Midler were in that film. Because I'm I oh, yeah. guess they're probably pretty close to the ages of the Cemetery Club actors.
1: Maybe. Yeah, you'd be surprised. It's what uh, I was talking about. Was it, was it Sex and the City 2 mm-hmm. when that came out? Those women were all like
0: close to the control. Golden Girl
1: Age, yeah. Yeah, they're close to the Golden Girl Age, yeah. Uh, the last thing we had look at is there, there was a personal connection, and I did find one because in 2016 I went to a 20th anniversary screening of the film called Two Days in the Valley, which I, I highly recommend that film, uh, directed by John Hertzfeld. And uh, Charlize Theron was there in person to do a – the cast member is Glenn Headley, the late Glenn Headley from Dick Tracy was there for to do a QA, and a and John Hertzfeld – and Danny Aiello, who stars in the film, he could not attend, but John Hertzfeld called him on his phone, and Danny Aiello held or, or called or picked up, and so Hertzfeld held his phone up to the mic so that the audience could hear him. So they kind of were asking questions of Danny Aiello over the phone, and it was it was pretty nice. I, I, yeah, it was it was pretty neat. But uh, yeah, so again, it's a Cemetery Club. It's what did you say? See the stage play if you can, maybe. Watch the film. Just know that you're going to be in for some, like I said, overly dramatic, heavy moments mixed with comedy that might be a little bit not matching quite in tone. There you go. Sounds good. I don't know what would be harder. Being with someone that I didn't love or falling in love all over again. Esther, at our age, you don't fall. You get hurt too easy. You know, when you're young, it's not so bad because you heal fast. But at our age, the heart is like the bones—just, just a little more fragile. So I'm careful not to fall when I walk, and I'm careful not to fall when I marry. You know what I want at this stage in my life? Mm-mm. Comfort, security. I want a friend. Now I'd like to take a look at another film that Walt Disney had produced around the same time It compares to our Touchstone film. And, you know, it, it worked out really well that they released another film in 1993 that had the word club in the title. It, it came out on September the 8th and it was released by Hollywood Pictures and it's called The Joy Luck Club. Hollywood Pictures presents the most critically acclaimed movie of the year, The Joy Luck Club. Time Magazine declares it's enthralling, a typhoon of emotions, a fourfold turns of endearment. Joel Siegel raves it's an extraordinary film in every way. And Siskel and Ebert give it two thumbs up, way up, and call it a powerful drama.
0: Make me happy. (laughs)
1: Don't miss the most talked about, best-reviewed movie in America. The Joy Luck Club, rated R. This was based on the best-selling novel by Amy Tan, who also co-wrote the screenplay adaptation to this day this is the only film that she's ever worked on uh, her co-writer was ronald bass who had just won an oscar for rain man in 1988 he'd also done some done films like black widow gardens of stone and his most recent credit was the 1991 Julia roberts film again sleeping with the enemy which i did see that one i think i remember after pretty woman when the julie roberts phenomenon was going on mm-hmm. sleeping with the enemy was the one that i had to run to the video <laughs> store to, to rent um but the joy let club was directed by wayne wang he had uh done a lo- he's done a lot of studio pictures since joy club but prior to this film he worked exclusively in independent cinema mostly focusing on films centered around asian american characters films like chan is missing dim sum a little bit of heart uh, and one called eat a bowl of tea you know when you think about it it seems like a perfect fit for this novel i'd read that him and amy tan were developing the screenplay for years because they didn't think it would be it would be too easy to film and, it would, and they got the right guy for it uh the premise is fairly simple you know it's just a, it's just a look into the lives and friendships between a group of chinese women and their mothers who had all immigrated to america years earlier you know it has a large ensemble cast many of which had mandarin speaking parts i I you know no disrespect, but it was just it wasn't like a lot of big names. I feel like the bigger names were the the woman who played the daughters, not the mothers, you know. And the and the most notable of the daughter characters is uh, Ming Na Wen, which was this was was her first Disney film. Now she's got this long running relationship with Disney because five years after this film, she would go on to provide the voice of Mulan. Um, We also get Victor Wong from Three Ninjas, Egg Shen from (laughs) Big Trouble in Little China, and had no idea (laughs) until the credits rolled that Andrew McCarthy is in the Joy Luck Club. I'm so tempted to to tweet that I was going to tweet at him and ask him about it because I did see that his memoir just came out, and I'm curious if he references his role in the Joy Luck Club. Yeah, that was pointed out
0: to me, I think, a couple days before I I watched the film. Someone I was talking to was like, oh, Andrew McCarthy's in this film. I'm like, are you? In my head, I didn't say anything, and I'm like, okay, fine. Obviously, I've not seen the film, so I don't know, but I'm like, are you thinking of a different film because this doesn't seem like an Andrew McCarthy film, but lo and behold, Andrew McCarthy. Yeah.
1: yeah. And I liked him in the movie because it seems like a lot of this movie has to deal with the drama, not not only the drama of these women's lives, but it's like their relationships with, with men. And it seems like all the men that both the mothers and the daughters deal with are like just they're jerks. Right. They do really <laughs> awful stuff to them. And I'm like, please don't let, don't, don't let Andrew McCarthy be one of those. And it seems like he you know, he he ends up breaking up with the woman that he's dating in the film. But it's like it's more the woman doing it. Right. Like Andrew McCarthy's just this sort of put upon guy. And he's just he's trying to be supportive and he gets sort of gets dumped as a result. But uh, you know what? We, we don't review the Hollywood picture. But I just want to say real quick, Chad, I'm kicking myself for not having seen this sooner because mm-hmm. I was I was really impressed. I remember, you know, uh, on the other podcast that you and I do, Chad, that's called Wonder Why, where we, we can look at one hit wonders. I always like to ask, like, do you remember when you first heard this song and how it, how it hits you. I remember this book being out. I remember hearing about the phenomenon of the joy luck club. And when the movie was released, I mean, I wouldn't have been in high school or I just finished high school, I should say. Um, but I, I would have no interest in seeing this. But now that I saw, it, you know, it's two hours and 20 minutes, but I was really, really uh, intrigued and compelled by it. I'm mean, glad I got to see it at home so I could pause a couple of times, take some intermissions on my own rather than seeing it in a theater. But yeah, I don't know why I waited this long because I was really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, I when I watched it, I was glad that we don't review Hollywood films because I would have a hard time figuring out what I would give this film because mm-hmm. I, I I it's a, I think it's a good film. I think it's great, but I, I just, you know, maybe I am not the target audience for this film. Maybe it's uh because I watched these all alone at home. And maybe if I'd saw it with a crowd or with other people, it may have been different. But I, I found the two hour and, and 20 minute runtime to be a long two hours mm. and 20 minutes. And I just but, I, I, you know, I thought it was interesting. But again, the major point in the story, though, it seems to be like all Chinese women have a hard life.
1: And... <laughs> well, what I thought was funny was everything I read about the film was like, oh, it's a. It's a real tearjerker at yeah. the end. Oh, you know, the, the end's going to be a real tearjerker. And so the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, okay, there's a lot of heavy stuff that happens. And you just assume it's going to be this sort of conventional ending where someone's going to pass away or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to reveal it because I want people who are listening to go watch this film if they can. Um, yeah, I, there were tears. I had, mm-hmm. I had a little bit of water forming in the corner of my eyes mm-hmm. because the ending, that tearjerker ending that you get is not what you expect. It's a great plot uh, plot point that maybe the, the, the movie sets it up a little bit. But once it actually plays out, it's really well done. And I, I, I thought I was being I was like, oh, my God, I'm just being overly dramatic. Why do I have tears forming? I looked over at my wife. I'm, I kid you not, Chad, mm-hmm. waterworks, total waterworks like she was a mess. And I was like, whoa, OK, because she was fine for the first two hours and 10 minutes. And then all of a sudden that last scene really hit her hard.
0: No, nah, So it wasn't just from you making her watch more movies that she's not interested in.
1: Well, no, she, this, this one, she paid attention to. Okay. She wanted to see it. Cause my uh, full disclosure, my wife is half Filipino. So she knows that, how, what it's like with, with <laughs> being raised by a single mother and then living with a grandmother as well. So it's like, she could kind of understand a little bit of it, but yeah. Oh man. She was just total waterworks. <laughs> uh, we always like to look at the, the thematic connection with the touchstone film in this case, pretty easy. I mean, I, you know, on the basic level, both the Cemetery Club and the Joy Luck Club show the bonds of friendship among women as they grow older. You know, we're not really sure how and when these women became friends, but we believe they have a certain chemistry, right? Because they they never set that up in either film, right? You just mm. know that they're that they're friends. Yeah. You know, in the Joy in the Joy Luck Club, it's this idea of these four older women and their four daughters. But I, I was thinking the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, they never really showed scenes of the four daughters like as kids or mm. how they would have known each other. They're all the framing device in the film is they're all at this one big party. And so you see them chat a little bit, but I, I kept thinking to myself, like how do these women know each other other than just being in this little, this club, this joy, Luck club where they meet and play Mahjong. But I, but yet you still feel they have a great chemistry, even though it seems like they're only, you're only just seeing what this party, you are not seeing, you're not seeing them outside of that. Mm-hmm. But, and then um, like, as Chad mentioned, I think, you know, the, the characters in the joy, Luck club endured, incredibly difficult times during the flashback scenes in the film to when they were coming of age in china um and it seems to give them better preparation for facing tragedy and moving on and i feel like cemetery club you know these characters also have kind of i mean not 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 the same hardships that that the chinese women in Joy love club did but did you notice that like the women in cemetery club have a harder time moving on you know Maybe, maybe their lives were just a little too easy. Tragedy hits them, and it really hits them. Whereas the Joy Luck Club women, you know, their upbringing was nothing. Or, or the, the, the problems they're dealing with, with with their daughters is nothing compared to what they had to deal with during their own right. young young lives, you know?
0: Yeah, right. Like like I said, I think the Cemetery Club women were used to having the man there to to do everything for them. Whereas the Joy Luck Club women are like, you know, they're the Asian women that are... Taking on all the responsibilities for themselves, and so yeah. it makes them uh, much tougher. And and you know, I was talking with a few of uh, my coworkers that uh, are are Asian, and they're like, "That's, you know, that's the Asian lifestyle." Yeah,
1: that's one hundred percent. So. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a really interesting movie. It's a very eye-opening film. And I mm-hmm. I have talked about it. I've, been, I've met know my wife for five years now, and I always talk about the fact that, you know, getting to know her family and see the different upbringing. Because, I mean, I, I grew up in Hawaii. I had a lot of friends who were Filipino and also Japanese and stuff. But, you know, just going to visit their, their house and meeting their parents for, you know, a little bit. But now that I'm actually sort of married into the family, it's, it's neat to see different cultures. And that's why I find myself... What? I find myself enjoying this film, you know, and I, like I said, I would, if anything, like, I think we mentioned it on the, one of our episodes for 1992, where we kept saying the the Hollywood picture was like Serafina, and we kept saying, go see Serafina, mm. we don't, I don't even remember what the, oh, we, we compared it to the gun in Betty Lou's handbag, mm. you know, it was like, you don't need to watch this, go see Serafina, and I'm like, Cemetery Club is fine, but go watch George Light Club, that's the, that's the club you want to join, like, mm. I, I think that one was A lot more interesting. I'm glad I got to see that
0: film. Yeah, Yeah, I would agree with that. That I, you know, if we had to recommend one of these films over the other, it would definitely be Joy Luck Club. But just you know, pack a snack, maybe take a nap beforehand, and just realize (laughs) you're settling in for a long experience.
1: Well, we weren't the only ones that chose the Joy Luck Club over the Cemetery Club. The box office Mm -hmm. audience did as well. So let's wrap up the show by looking at the box office performances of the two films. As I mentioned, The Cemetery Club was released on February 3rd of 1993. It was limited to only six screens, but yet it only had a 9,000 per screen average, which is kind of on the low end. You know, if you're only on six screens, you want to be getting up to five figures, it seems like. Um, the other films that opened the same weekend were uh, National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1, which finished in first place. Summersby, which finished in second place. And The Vanishing, finished fourth uh, as far as Disney, Disney films, you know, both Aladdin and Alive were still in the top 10. And Homeward Bound opened on the same weekend, but only on two screens. But that had a much, much better per screen average. Uh, and in its second week, Cemetery Club goes wider, only 523 screens. Um, but it finishes 13th with $1.9 million. This was a President's Day weekend, too, a long weekend. Uh, the other films that opened that weekend were Groundhog Day, which dominated the box office for most of February of 93. And you also get Untamed Heart. That's the, Is that the Christian Slater, uh, Marissa Tomei film? Yeah, Rosie Perez, yes. Yeah. And then you also have The Temp which 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 uh which was also in the top 10 that week uh as i mentioned homeward bound and aladdin were still in theaters those were third third homeward bound was third aladdin was fourth so disney's did have two top five films at the time but Summer club didn't do much and then it winds up dropping from 13th to 16th place and then it just leaves the box office charts after three weeks it only grosses six million dollars in its entire theatrical run now i couldn't find budget info so maybe the budget was kind of low although they got a bunch of good name actors unless they're all just working for scale because they're just getting smaller parts um but you know it was released at an interesting time you know it feels like that february time frame you know you've got the previous years oscar movies are starting to go wide and then you're getting comedies like groundhog day and motor weapon one and those are commanding a lot of the viewers attention plus you know i feel like it's hard enough to market a film towards an older crowd but but when would you release this movie chad like i mean late summer or early fall is what i was thinking of you know because like were they trying to make it like a valentine's day movie and hoping that maybe people would want to go see it see an older crowd i guess
0: i mean that would be an interesting uh you know marketing strategy hey couples go see this film about couples where one of them dies
1: yeah exactly I, you know. that's what yeah I'm wondering if it would have been better off, like I said, maybe missed the in that little pocket in like late August, September before the next round of Oscar movies comes out, because it's like this—it's too funny to be uh, to be taken seriously as like an Oscar contender, right? But I don't know, I don't know. Uh, But again, as we mentioned, the other film did quite well. That's the Joy Luck Club. It was released on September 8th. It was it was also limited only on three screens. But it, at, at the per-screen average was 53,000. That's, that's what you expect to see from a, a limited release. Um, the only films that opened against it were Undercover Blues, True Romance, and do you remember the, the real McCoy? I had to look that one up. That's oh, Kim, Basinger. Kim Basinger. Yeah, I do yeah. not know that one. Uh,
0: you are probably not missing out, but uh, I do remember seeing that video cover, or, yeah, the video cassette cover in the video store a lot.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I remember Undercover Blues. Never saw it. I didn't see yeah. True Romance until recently, but uh, yeah. So those were those were that was the Joy Luck Club's competition, at least that were wider release. The only other Disney film on the charts that week was the Hollywood picture Money for Nothing, which was its only weekend on the <laughs> box office chart. So we're going to get to that one in a few episodes. So I'm curious why that did as poorly as it did. Um, the number one film of the the week of Joy Luck Club opened was The Fugitive, which was its sixth straight week at number one. So I'm like, there's, there's sort of your counter-programming. Uh, Joy Luck Club slowly expands to seven screens and then 103 screens. It's still dominating the per-screen average. Like I said, it, it, it made 53,000 in its first week, then it drops to 38,000 and then 15,000. Still, 15,000 per screen. That's pretty solid. Um, just, just a smattering of the new films that were coming out in the theaters during those first few weeks of the Joy Luck Club's release. You got Striking Distance, uh, The Age of Innocence, Chad, I know you love Airborne, the the rollerblading movie. Uh, rolling blade, blading, Seth Green, uh, Jack Black movie. So oh, I was, I forget that they're in that. Yeah. yeah. And then we also have the Good Son with Macaulay Culkin. We have t- the Touchstone film, uh, the program, Warlock, the Armageddon. I guess that, those were doing quite well. I mean, I guess people wanted to see horror movies, and that September, October timeframe yeah. is a good time to do it. And then we also had, I didn't realize they had a limited release that slowly went wide for Dazed and Confused was out at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, Jordan Light Club does manage to crack the top 10 in its third week, finishes in ninth place, and then it continues expanding throughout the month of October. It goes 300, then 400, 500, 600 screens finally, and all the time it's managing to rank between sixth and ninth on the box office charts. Just a steady, steady run. They did it right started small get a little word of mouth because i'm mm. sure that word of mouth would have been pretty strong uh the other films that opened during october that it had to compete with uh, a lot of star like bigger star uh, pictures like malice you know uh for love or money a bronx tale we get the disney film cool runnings demolition man uh, chad chad loves him some hulk hogan so we get mr nanny yeah I was, I was
0: wondering why that was listed with all these other star movies but.
1: Hey. Hey, that had star power, star power. Uh, Beverly Hillbillies also came out on that same time frame. Uh, Judgment Night, Fatal Instinct, and also Rudy. So it's so, I mean, I think Dread Club fits in perfectly into that grouping of films, you know. Uh, it drops out of the top ten in November following the release of Look Who's Talking Now and RoboCop 3, The Three Musketeers, Adam's Family Values uh carlito's ways on the same time like you're starting to get a lot more franchise pictures and stuff as the holidays rolled around but it manages a a solid three-month run on the charts and it winds up grossing 32.9 million dollars during its entire theatrical release and the budget i found was only 10.5 million so just enough to to make a slight small profit i think like you know again you've got there's a lot of pictures that it was competing against again Mm -hmm. Some bigger stars, I mean, Malice would have been the, that was the Nicole Kidman, Alec Baldwin, right? And you got Age of Innocence, you got big directors like Martin Scorsese, you know, and I give him credit that it manages to stay on that chart that whole time up until the holiday rush and when you start getting those sequels, like, look who's talking now and Adam's Family Values, you know. I mean, like I said, do you remember going to the theater around that time and having a choice between Joy Luck Club and something else? Because I feel like some of these other movies in the chart, I did, I managed to see some of them, but not all.
0: Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, I'm I'm sure Joy Luck Club would have been playing at some theater that I went to, but uh, it was never on my radar to go see. Um, But I will say, uh, in early 94, I believe it was, uh, Lauren Tom, who plays one of the daughters in the film, came and spoke at Southern Illinois University, which is, you know, yours and mine's alma mater. And uh, Mm. I was working for the student TV station, which we've talked about a few times, and one of the other members was doing, we got to interview her before uh, her speech. And so I got to run the camera and, and be the cameraman for that interview and talk to her for a little bit. Very nice person. And then when she oh. went on, on to be on Friends for a few episodes, I'm like, that's my good friend, Lauren Tom. <laughs> and the restraining order is like,
1: rephrase that. So. Yeah, yeah. Don't say it like that. <laughs> uh, well, I always like to look at if, if, if either of the films that we discussed had were up for any awards. So, unfortunately, The Cemetery Club was not. But as to be expected, The Joy Luck Club did get some award nominations. It did get a best adapted screenplay nomination at both the BAFTA Awards and also the Writers Guild Awards. Uh, another show that I, I, I guess it still exists, maybe in some form, we bring up a lot on this podcast is the Young Artist Awards. And three of the actresses, Vu Mai, Irene Ng, and Melanie Chang, all get nominated. And Melanie Chang actually wins Best Actress under the age of 10. Because, hmm. I mean, the, I mean, now that I think about it, Chad, when you watch Joy Luck Club, the young actresses who play the moms in the flashback to the scenes in China, they're oh. all really good. Hmm. So I, I could see where they would they would kind of... Not wouldn't say sweep, but at least dominate the Young Artist Awards. Yeah. Uh, and then the last thing, I, I mean, I guess it st- still exists and it's, a, it's a, um, a letter of pride is that the Joy Luck Club was named one of the top ten films with a national border of review. And I think they're still doing it right, but that was kind yeah. of a badge of honor for a while there. If you got to be one of the top ten films, because I looked at the that year's list and it's basically like all the movies nominated for Best Picture and then some really, really significant films.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I'm kind of surprised that the Cemetery Club didn't get a Nick
1: kid's choice award nomination but (laughs) uh, or uh, yeah I mean Whoopi Goldberg in R-rated movies gets that kid's choice I'm sure they can find a place for Olympia Dukakis or Danny Aiello (laughs) all right Chris Ricci at least come on Oh, that's true. That's true. Well, in conclusion, we always like to see, you know, did these films fit the Disney ideal of the singles and doubles, as Jeffrey Katzenberg called it? Uh, You know, I I guess you got an ensemble piece with some notable names and not a large budget in Cemetery Club. And then you've got an adaptation of a bestseller that doesn't have any major stars as well. But the, the, the brand name is the novel in the Joy Luck Club. So I don't know about you, Chad. It seems like a great fit for this new Disney, even if Cemetery Club wasn't that financially successful.
0: Well, I think you know watching these films, and you kind of you brought it up when we talked about Sister Act, and and the reason why you started this podcast idea. These are movies that, yes, even though I was not a huge fan of 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 either film, um, this go around, these are the types of films that I miss them making because each of these films has a targeted audience, and now all we get are films that are you know, targeted towards everyone from 6 to 60. And they all going to go in the same, you know, everybody's got to go see the same movie. And I would rather have more of these smaller, focused films. Maybe there should be a, a company, like, called Focused Films, where they can just focus on making <laughs> good films. But, yeah, I, uh, you know, I applaud Disney for making both of these films because I like the idea, as I just said, of uh, doing kind of genre pieces, if you will. And, and yeah, they, you know, I I don't know why Cemetery Club didn't hit. I I would have thought that would have been better, but uh, again, I don't know. 1993, it's a whole different year. So who knows? But uh, I can see like Joy Luck, you know, I mean, you look at, you know, recently the success of Crazy Rich Asians, which is pretty much, to my knowledge, right off the top of my head, the first, all Asian film, major film since *Joy Luck Club*. So, you know, maybe there's an audience out there that is being underrepresented in film.
1: Well, yeah, and like I said, I, I one of the reasons I started this podcast is because I like that these this era of movies, and it's great to see Danny Aiello and Wallace Shawn and Lady Kazan and Victor Wong yeah. and Andrew McCarthy. Right, seeing all these character actors or actors who were bigger not huge stars because, like nowadays the movies you watch, even the smallest roles are filled by a list actors because mm-hmm. fewer and fewer major motion pictures are being made. And so, you know, we've gone through this pandemic where we've been sitting at home and streaming a lot more movies. And this is where I'm glad that these exist. You know, we always like yeah. to point out, you know, if anybody's listening to the show and wants to, wants to watch them, I can tell you that both the cemetery club and the joy light club are streaming on hoopla, which is the streaming service through the public library system. And, you know, I again, I'm really glad that we did this reformat where we would look at the Hollywood pictures because who knows I might not ever I might not have ever seen Doyley Club and I think I would have been missing out because I wound up really really enjoying it much more than I thought I would.
0: Yeah, like I said, I don't want to sound like a being too negative. I just I I like I think the film is very well done and the acting is great. It's just it, again, sitting at home watching it by myself not the not the ideal circumstance to watch this film and mm. And so, I, you know, I don't think I, I don't know if I'll go back and rewatch it again, because I have a tendency not to watch a lot of movies that are over two hours unless they're just amazing to me. But, yeah. uh, you know, I, this would be in film, like if they wanted to do Joy Luck Club 2, I'd be like, okay, <laughs> let me, let me see what's going on. I don't think you need to, but Hollywood, yeah. you know, I know you like name brand recognition and, and not coming up with original ideas. So knock yourself out.
1: Well what's funny is I actually mentioned that to my wife is that I I think the Joy Luck Club will be even better on second viewing hmm. because one of the issues that I had with that movie is that I feel like the moms were so hard on their daughters. Hmm. Like they're they're just I mean, I'm pretty sure all four of them at one point they're not they're not speaking to each other. And but then when you realize what those moms went through, like I wonder if I would see their characters in a different light, hmm. knowing how the movie endless like and that. stuff like that so that's why i'm like this mo- I, I, I give him credit because this movie actually would, would reward a second dealing so but hey that's the hollywood picture look at the touchstone picture again we, i never heard of cemetery club before we started this show i'm glad i got a chance to see it i'm glad i got to see some 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 great actors but it's one of those ones that'll just kind of like all right check it off the list and we move on to the next film, mm-hmm. and what is the next touchstone film? Well, actually, if you look at the touchstone film, we've also got a Hollywood picture to discuss in the next episode, and we're going to be once again looking at films that focus on friendship, but this time around, we're going to be looking at the turmoil and nostalgia of going from adolescence into young adulthood, and what movies we'll be discussing Well, you're just going to have to tune in to find out once again my name is mike dekalb you can find me on twitter at mike dekalb i also run the out of touchstone twitter account it's at out of touchstone if you want to shoot me an email it's out of touchstone at gmail.com. uh my co-host chad smart he's also on twitter at chad smart he's the proprietor of the positive cynicism podcasting network we do we do a podcast together called wonder why and apparently chad you're about to launch a second podcast for the network
0: that is true we're launching a show uh, with a good friend of ours that we've met through podcasting. And we are going to be looking, keeping the music theme of the show, we're going to look back in the 80s, a decade that we love and hold dear to our hearts. And kind of, I think the focus will be mostly on the rock metal scene of the 80s. But, you know, we'll see what other topics we can come up with. Because that is, as we say on Wonder Why, it's the greatest decade of music ever. And there's so many stories to be told there.
1: Now, if we can just get your co-host on that show to... Give us give us his thoughts on the Joy Let Club. We could just come full circle as well. Yeah. So, any final thoughts before we say goodnight? Uh, you know, I
0: I'm just going to say go watch a movie with David Arquette. That's uh oh, you should take away there You know the you cannot kill David Arquette documentary is on Hulu. Uh, I have not watched it, but uh, go check it out.
1: You know what? I'm gonna no I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna veto that <laughs> and say go watch a go watch a movie with Lainey Kazan. Huh. Go watch a movie with Wallace Shawn. Go watch a movie with Danny Aiello. You'll be much better off.
0: And if you can find a movie starring any combination of those, let us know
1: because that's a movie I want to see. Absolutely. This is Out of Touchstone, and we're out of time.
0: Out of of Touchstone is a Honey Nerds production. For more information, visit outoftouchstone.com. Like and subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening.
1: So, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool. Thank you.
0: Good night.